Well, I am really happy to be with you this morning. This is a really exciting Sunday for me. Um, I've been trying to think of what I'm going to say when I come up just to, you know, thank you for welcoming me so well. And um, just even just this past weekend has been great to meet with some of you for meals. And if I didn't meet with you for a meal, then let's set something up for next weekend because I'm going to be here next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So um, let's get together. We don't have to eat, I guess, if you don't want to. But, I mean, that's always a good incentive, you know, even if our... Even if you have no interest in conversation with me, at least you could have a good meal, right? So, um, yeah, anyway, thank you so much. I, I've felt incredibly welcomed, um, very warmly accepted, and um, excited to start uh, ministry with you. Um, speaking of which, the bow ties, thank you guys. That is, it's so funny. It's, the funniest part is that I didn't get it until just a minute ago, that why it was happening. And I, it, the only thing I could think of was like, why didn't I wear my bow tie? And so I ran out to my car before the service started and put my bow tie on because I didn't want to get left out. And then I realized what it was for. So thank you, guys. That, I mean, it's, it's like a funny thing, but it also really touches my heart. So thank you so much. It, man, that, that's just so cool. Um, I felt like there's been all these great serious moments of camaraderie and fellowship over the weekend, and and like, boy, just really excited to get and get connected with these people. And then the bow tie thing was just great. So thank you so much for that. We're gonna be in the book of Philippians for 12 weeks, God willing. Um, if this is indeed the way that, if it goes the way that I intend for it to go, we will be 12 weeks in the book of Philippians. Um, so just after Thanksgiving, uh, we will have finished with this book. But before we get into uh, reading the passage, um, I'm going to ask you to just take a look up here at some of the background information that I gathered. I don't want to go too deep into um, too much background concerning the book, but I'm going to give a, a couple facts and then we'll uh, read the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 11 and I'll pray, and we'll dig in. So um, one of the things that we should know about Philippi as a city was that it was a convenient and busy harbor for trade. So it was, it was a hub for a lot of the economy that was going on in the Roman Empire at the time. One thing that they had going for them were gold mines. And these gold mines yielded over 100, oh, I'm sorry, over 1,000 talents of gold every year. So there was a great amount of wealth coming from um, that uh, colonists that lived there shared the status of Roman citizens in every way as those who lived in Rome. So uh, we actually even talked a little bit about in Sunday school um, Paul's being a Roman citizen and the benefits that came with that. One such being that you could appeal to Caesar in any case that you were um, brought to court. You could appeal to a higher court and um, actually be heard by the emperor himself if you so exercise that right. Is that all I have? Oh, is there a timeline after? Oh, good. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I should have looked at this, but I, I was familiar. Um, a couple of important dates. Uh, 360 BC was the founding of Philippi. It was an Athenian colony called Crinitus. In 357, shortly after, Crinitus was renamed Philip for a guy named Philip, who, just out of curiosity, does anybody know who Philip was? He was the father of an important historical figure. Alexander the Great. Correct. Yeah. Boy, you guys are smart. All right. 49 AD, shooting pretty far into the future here. Um, Paul's first visit, I have Acts 17 up there, and I changed it in my notes, and I forgot about the, um, the PowerPoint. It's actually Acts 16 that chronicles what, Paul, what happens with Paul in, um, in Philippi in his first visit. So that's 49. And then um, in 51 or 52 AD, the church at Philippi um, began with, uh, we have a couple of key people from that Acts chapter 16 visit, uh, that being Lydia, the um, maker of purples. And we have a great line with Lydia that says that when Paul um, preached to her and her household and her friends, um, it said that the Lord opened up her heart, um, enabled her to pay attention to the things that Paul said, and she received the gospel. And then, of course, we have the Philippian jailer. You might be familiar with that story, that um, Paul was in prison, and he and Silas were praying and singing hymns, and the walls shook, and the prison doors opened, and um, the Philippian jailer, you know, waking up to seeing all the doors open was terrified, thinking that all of his, um, his captives had escaped and was about to kill himself when Paul says, don't do that, we're all still here, don't do any harm to yourself, everything's fine, and then he has that great line, does anybody know the line? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved, right? 
And then, of course, Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus, you and your household, and you will be saved. Um, so there's a Philippian jailer. Um, from 52 to 62 AD is our time frame for when this letter would have been written um, by Paul. Uh, we know it was written in prison, and he was either in prison in Rome or Caesarea. Those are the two prominent ideas in scholasticism today. And that th- this time period of 52 to 62 is, you know, it's a good 10 years, and it might sound like a long time, but for a letter that was written over 2,000 years ago, and for the fact that Paul didn't necessarily put a date on the original that we don't have in the first place, it's a pretty good guess here that we have this 10-year period. Um, but they do date it closer, most likely, to 61 A.D., So, there's a couple little things that we should know. Um, In addition, something that came to me this morning, as you perhaps do your own research on this book, you may happen upon the fact that many scholars consider this book to be a collection of letters from uh, Paul to the Philippian church. And, you know, that's that's one of those things that, you know, when you go to Bible school and you hear things like that and you go, oh no, what's, don't freak out, it's fine, it's okay. If this was one whole letter, or if it was a compilation of letters, we know with almost absolute certainty scholastically, but we do know because the Lord has spoken to us through his word here, we know that this was written by the Apostle Paul. And so it carries that apostolic authority um, and to be the word of God. Um, So don't let that bother you if that's something that you come across. Um, We'll note some places that there seem to be a distinction where there there may be a natural ending here that might start another letter um, later on as we go on through this book. Um, But again, remember, this was written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's go ahead and read Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Hopefully you've had a chance to get there. Um, I always say, and I think I said last time I was here, that, that the most important thing you can do today is read God's word. So even amidst all the singing, amidst our prayer, even, and that's, that's, you know, prayer is very important. Sermons are very important. Music's very important. The most important thing we can do today is open up God's word and read that. So please read along with me. Starting at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Will you pray with me? Father, now as we look to your word, we ask that you would bring life to our hearts through it. We know that your word is living and active. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see the life to come into our hearts and through our our own lives, through our own circumstances and situations. Father, I pray that you'd help us now as we um, consider what this means. I ask for my own help, Lord, that you would uh, grant your spirit to me and to all of us in this room that we might hear from you, Lord, not from me or from any other man, but rather that you would um, take your truth and plant it deep in us, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, take away any kind of distractions, any things that are worries on our minds, that we would lay them at your feet freely and obediently so that we might hear from you this morning for your glory and our joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, it's important for us to point out at the beginning of this book that this is an epistle, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. It's not written to one individual, it's written to a group of people. And so as we consider diving into this book, we need to remember that it was written to the church at Philippi at a specific time, that 52 to 62 AD time period. But the truth that is found in here is for all of time. It is for the church of all time. So we'll have some cultural bridges bridges to cross, but at the same time we know that the truth of what Paul expresses to the church is equally powerful today as it was even then. 
The early church lived in eager anticipation of the return of Christ. And we often consider the return of Christ and the day of Christ by means of signs and wonders and um, pointers and how will we know and can we predict. And people have tried to predict the day of Christ for 2,000 years and have failed miserably each time. Jesus even himself said to his disciples that it is not for you to know signs and times. That not even at that time, Jesus was, was not permitted to know the day that he would return, that he would return to heaven and await the command of his father to say, now go back. But the, the early church lived in eager anticipation of it. They believed full-heartedly that Jesus would come back in their day. Now, the fact that he didn't doesn't negate that faith. But what it does for us today is it shows us that we ought to be living in that eager anticipation for Christ to return, right? I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every morning thinking, could it be today? I don't. I mean, I started preaching, you know, preparing for this passage, and of course then, you know, I started doing that a little bit more often. But, um, again, the early church, this was one of the things that were on the forefront of their mind. You know, it is important for us to preach the cross, it is necessary for us to preach a cross. Paul says that I have desired to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. It's essential. The gospel is found, the good news of what Jesus has done is found at the cross. Additionally, the return of Christ, though it is not so often in our forefront of our minds, is part of the gospel message. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life as the Son of God, fully human, fully God, fulfilled the law on our behalf, died as an atoning sacrifice to bring us to God, rose again, which is another part that we leave out sometimes. We kind of imagine, you know, as, as we share evangelistically with people, we sometimes forget to mention that he didn't stay dead. But he rose again to newness of life, and he is seated at the right hand of God, and that he will one day return. It's a great truth for us who believe in Christ and who have put all of our faith in him that Jesus does not only love us, he's not only died and risen for us, but he's coming back for us. And a little illustration just popped into my mind, so I'm putting that precursor there in case it totally just falls flat. But my, my daughter, um, anytime I leave, it is devastating for her. You know, it is just... It's not an okay time. And, and I tried to prepare her for this weekend and, you know, say, like, Daddy's leaving for three days, you know, and then I will come back. I, you know, I felt like I was preaching the gospel. After the third day, I will rise. You know, I will come back to you. Um, and, and it was so funny because this time around, as I was telling her that, she immediately started singing the song. And I'm sorry, you parents who maybe have too many Daniel Tiger songs in your head like I do. Um, but he has a song that goes, grown-ups, come back, right? And she immediately started singing that song. She, she, she needed to remind herself that I would come back. And in fact, when she goes out with her grandma, she usually comes home running and saying, grown-ups, come back. And I'm like, well, you're not a grown-up, but yes, it applies. I'm glad that you're thinking that. Um, but I think that what Nora is teaching me here, and I'm sure she absolutely means to be teaching me some truth about the Christian life, but what she is teaching me in these moments is that my faith in Christ is not in a Christ who is absent from me. He is indeed among us. Amen? Right? He's here with us. We don't worship a, a dead Savior. We worship, worship a living Savior who is in our midst by his Holy Spirit. And there is going to be a day, a great and terrible day, for those who believe in Christ, a great, a wonderful um, awakening, a, a wonderful um, confirmation of everything that we've held to. Jesus will return. And the, these disciples who were in Philippi believed and clung to that truth, just as many others did um, in, this, in the early church time, and just as we should as well. So this message is not about the day of Jesus Christ, even though it's titled that. It's, it's, it's about until the day of Christ. So there's no prophecy to be mentioned in here. I'm not you know, going to now trick you and go to the book of Revelation. But this phrase, until the day of Christ, is mentioned twice in the passage that we looked at. Um, and so it serves as a shining lighthouse for hope for believers. And it's a source of our joy. 
Not only has Jesus died and risen for us, but he is coming back for us. This is a distinguishing mark of a true believer. Not that we carry no burdens or feel no sorrow, but that in Christ, we've been given an unshakable hope that produces an ever-available joy regardless of our circumstances. You know, Jesus mentioned the joy that he would leave with his disciples that the world can't take away. And oftentimes I, I find that I'm not walking in that joy, and so I question whether that joy is, is really true. Is it really something that stays? But and that's, that's why I, I try to phrase this very carefully, that the hope that we have is unshakable, and it leads us to an ever-available joy. So joy is a choice in the gospel. It's something that we must receive it's not something we muster up, and it's not something that we you know, hold on to and, and, and try to maintain on our own, but rather it is a gift. So to, for that point, uh, Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan pastor in the 1600s, he says this concerning joy and the day of Christ's return. I just remembered it's up here. Yes. Oh, wait. Nope. I skipped something, didn't I? Is that what that is? Jesus called them to him? That's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip that for now. I'm going to go to... I'm going to come back because I rearranged something just this morning. Okay, so Richard Baxter, he says this, Oh, that Christians would learn to live with one eye on Christ crucified and the other on his coming and glory. If everlasting joys were more in your thoughts, spiritual joys would abound more in your hearts. No wonder when you are comfortless when heaven is forgotten. When Christians let fall their heavenly expectations but heighten their earthly desires... They are preparing themselves for fear and trouble. Who is met with a distressed, complaining soul, where either a low expectation of heavenly blessings or too high a hope for joy on earth is not present? What keeps us under trouble is either we do not expect what God has promised or we expect what he has not promised. So that's a fairly lengthy quotation here, but to go back to the beginning for a moment again, if everlasting joys were more in your where? Thoughts. If everlasting joys were more in your thoughts, spiritual joys would abound more in your where? Hearts. Seeing if you're reading along or not. <laughs> um, so, yes, this is a discipline. It's something that we receive and that we trust that the Lord has provided for us rather than thinking, I need, to, I need to create this emotional response. Joy is not an emotional response to anything. It is a, we'll define it in a minute, but um, it's something that we are given by Christ when, as Baxter says, that we live with one eye on Christ crucified and the other eye on his coming in glory. And, you know, the truth is, is that as we think of the coming of Christ, it's very easy for us to immediately, it's very easy for me, I'm not going to throw this on anybody else, but maybe you can identify with me. It's very easy for me when I consider the imminence of Christ's return, that he could be coming back any moment, it could be in our lifetime. It's very easy for me to think, oh, but I just had another child. I, she's only four weeks old today. I, I'd really like to see what, what's going to become of her. I, I'd really like to see what's going to become of both of my children. I just got a really great job at an amazing church. Uh, I, I still need to sell my house. I mean, the list goes on of things that we think, Jesus, I, I am excited for you to come, just not ready yet. Well, the truth is, if you're not excited for the return of Christ, then you're not ready at all. And there's there's nothing for us to do but to realign our priorities, realign why we are here. You know, I, in, in school, I had a lot of questions about, you know, why do we exist? What's the purpose of life? All that kind of stuff. For a Christian, the reason that you're still on earth is to tell other people the gospel. That is why you are here. That is the difference between here and eternity. In the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, when we are there, there will be no evangelism in the traditional sense of bringing people from death to life spiritually. If you're here today, you are here to take the truth that you know that Christ is risen and is returning again and share that good news with other people. That's it. And he will be coming back. So Baxter gives us the reason for having two eyes. Let's look at verses 1 through 2 one more time. To all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Paul and Timothy write, to these people who are overseers and deacons and saints. But what does Paul identify himself as in verse 1? Interactive moment. 
Servants. Thank you. <laughs> He's a servant. Um, so, so one of the things I want to get to with these first two verses is that Christ-exalting leadership and service means that we need to lead and serve consistently with the one who has led and is continuing to serve us, that being Jesus. So Paul calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. He doesn't flaunt any authority in identifying himself. He could. He could say the Apostle Paul. He could say St. Paul, as we often call him. Um, he doesn't even call himself an overseer or a deacon. He doesn't grab onto and say, oh, well, I act as an overseer, or, you know, I'm, I'm a servant, so I could call myself a deacon. Even though he's among the saints, and even though he has served as an overseer, he identifies himself as a servant. And that word for servant, you may know it already, is doulos, which actually in its most literal sense means slave. So owned by Christ. So this is consistent with what Jesus told us about spiritual leadership in the church. In Matthew 20, 25 through 28, right here, says, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Which is such a great phrase there. You know, it's those, those leaders that say, don't you forget that I'm in charge. It's like what we were talking about in Sunday school regarding those Roman soldiers who had the freedom to say, hey, if I want you to carry my coat, if I want you to make me lunch, if I want you to do whatever, you have to because I have the sword. I'm the one in charge. Jesus says, you know, the rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That word diakonos, where we get our office of deacon term from. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, doulos used again, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is an essential fact in not only if you hold a, an office within the church, but just in all of Christian life. So listen to what Tim Keller says regarding um, what he calls steward leadership. He says, I guess I could read it from there. <laughs> Godly leadership is essentially the accountable, sorry, this is another long quote, so get ready. It is the, essentially the accountable rather than autonomous meaning uh, on its own, individual, accountable cultivation rather than exploitation, you know, growing and enhancing something rather than using it for personal means, of resources. Sinful leadership is using a particular resource selfishly rather than for the benefit of others, and therefore exploitatively harming rather than cultivating and honoring the resource itself. And this is what Paul is all about this kind of godly leadership that goes against any kind of concept that the world has come up with. You know, in, in the world system, you work towards moving up and up and up the ladder until you can become the CEO or whatever high position you want because that's where the power is. That's where you know you're important. But Paul shows us, even in this, just this one phrase of being a servant of Christ Jesus, he's showing us that Christ's model of, of leadership is countercultural to what we experience today. So every Christian leader is only a leader in relationship to the fact that he is first a slave, first owned and loved by God, and called to lead and serve consistently with the way Christ leads and the way Christ serves. By the way, again, if you hold an office within the church, or you don't hold an office within the church, spiritual leadership is essential for your Christian walk because you are a leader in some context. You may be a leader at your home. You may be a leader at work. You may be a leader in your, with your family or wherever. But if, at the very least, you are still under your own self-leadership, your own self. Um, you, are, you are a steward of the life that God has given you. Does that make sense? You know, so even at that level, the way that we serve and lead is important for us to acknowledge. So next, uh, verses 3 through 5 show us joy and gospel partnership. So Paul's calling us to embrace Christ-centered joy and fellowship with each other. So he writes this letter to the church from prison, but what he says doesn't sound like the words of a lonely prisoner. Okay, look at it again in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
Thanksgiving, remembrance with joy. Paul doesn't persist in negative things going on in the church at this point. He does talk about something later on in chapter 4, verse 2 that we'll get to eventually. But at this point, when he thinks on the church, he's filled with thanksgiving and he's filled with joy. Another mark of true Christianity in the life of an individual is love for the church. Now, we're commanded to love, right? We know that. We're commanded to love God and love each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. There's also this, this, this... you know, we can, we can wrap the church up in that general idea of love, but Jesus also does call us to a, a, a specific or a special kind of love for the church that he calls us to walk in and embrace. Now, going back to our, our big word up here, which is joy, which we'll see many times in the book of Philippians. Um, this is the first and actually the only mention of it in the section that we'll look at today. But there are three different Greek word groups used for joy in the New Testament. And this one is kario, the most commonly used. It's used 140 times. It's first used at the birth of Christ. So Paul takes this word kario that in his uh, context, the Greek word was most often used as a result of physical or material comfort. And instead of using it to describe his physical or material comfort, because again, he's in prison, which prison then is not like prison today. I mean, not that prison today is any vacation, but very, very different than prison then. You know, you may not eat unless your friends come and bring you food. You may not be even warmly dressed unless your friend comes and brings you warmer clothes, as Paul, we see Paul talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy about. But he takes this word that so often just meant physical and material comfort, and he says that it's this joy in something that it's, it's the church, it's, it's in them, it's in what God is doing and is going to do and has done amongst his people. He expresses a sure, content, and excited trust in the work of God. A sure, content, and excited trust in the work of God. I think that's, that's a good definition of joy. Um, of course I did, I made it up, but you know. I think it's helpful that uh, this joy is not temporary, it's not conditional, it is in Christ and, and it's seen in his people. So we are in a way a, a picture of what Christ is doing. We, we are what Christ is doing in this world and, and through whom um, his work is being accomplished. So another quote here, um, if you like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is from his book Life Together. So he says, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian community that is more than this and none that is less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily community of many years, Christian community is solely this. We belong to one another through and in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means, first, that a Christian needs others for the sake of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. It means, third, that from eternity we have been chosen in Jesus Christ, accepted in time, and united for eternity. It is all about Jesus. We can come here together and wear bow ties and celebrate, you know, the greatness of the bow tie, right? Um, it, it's awesome. But we're here, and, and, and you know, the, the bow tie thing seemed, at first, again, going back to my experience of it and saying, why does everybody wear bow ties? I was thinking, oh, it must be a fun thing. There's some kind of joke going on. But then there was a deeper, more impacting truth. Again, this sounds silly, but it really impacted me when I realized that you guys were wearing them because I wore one last time. You know, there was a deeper truth in there. Community, Christian community, is not simply about, oh, I get along with this person, I feel like I could hang out with this person, we could go eat, we could go watch a football game or whatever. Christian community is deeper than that. It is all wrapped up in who Jesus Christ is. Christ at the center of our purpose for fellowship means there's a never-ending source of joy to be had in each other that comes from him. On the day where you are the most annoyed, frustrated, gotta just give up with this other person who's a brother or sister in Christ, you can always remember that they are a blood-bought member of the body of Christ. Every single situation. And there are church situations, people get into rough arguments People have serious disagreements. 
We have to remember that we're part of the blood-bought body of Christ for his glory. Okay, so the believers are partners with him. This word that is used here for um, partners is koinonia, which is the word for fellowship or communion. And it's not simply occasional or even deep friendship, even though that's important. Its original use had more to do with going into business. So D.A. Carson defines it as self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That's what fellowship in, in this context means, that there's a purpose and people are going in on it. They're, they're, they're purchasing some part of this vision or of this goal. And they're, they're doing that communally together to accomplish that goal at their own expense. Paul shows it to be an I'm in prison doing what you're doing outside of prison kind of camaraderie. That in his mind, you know, they are, they're linked with him, they're in fellowship with him, they're united by the Spirit and in Paul's experience, there's, distance means nothing in this context. There, he still takes great joy in the Philippian church, even though he can't be with them. He knows that they are united to him through Christ and are living on the same mission that he is in. And again, remember, when Paul's in prison, he's not just sitting there thinking, okay, well, you know, you can't really expect too much of me right now. I'm in prison. I'm kind of through a hard life situation right now. And so I kind of need a break on this whole sharing the gospel thing. And the Philippians also can't say, hey, Paul's not here, so you know, we're going to just start planning some other events and doing some other things and just kind of move away from this whole sharing the gospel thing because that's getting really hard. Neither of these parties can do that because regardless of our circumstances or situations, the gospel still needs to be heard by many people. Jesus said the fields are white for harvest. And so pray that the Lord would send workers into his harvest. And every time I read that and imagine Jesus telling me those words, to, telling me to pray that someone, that the Lord would send someone into the field to do the work, you know, I'm realizing he's talking about me. You know, I, I, it's not at all a bad thing to pray that the Lord would send missionaries to a far-off country or that the Lord would send missionaries into your town or, or whatever it may be. But it shouldn't take us too long to realize that we're a part of God's solution, that we're tools in his hands to bring about the gospel truth in the lives of many people. So fellowship leads me to my favorite movie series, and I'm sure probably your favorite movie series, um, and possibly my favorite scene, which is the Council of Elrond, of course, right? Your favorite scene, too, in any movie, right? So, some of you are laughing now just to be nice. You're like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. The Lord of the Rings, Right? The Fellowship of the Ring. There had to be a Lord of the Rings illustration for this sermon. And my favorite scene, the Council of Elrond, everybody's sitting around and they're looking at the one ring that can destroy the whole world. And they're sitting there and Elrond says, one of you must take this to Mount Doom and throw the ring into the fire. And it's silent. And it's one of the greatest silences in movie history, in my opinion, of you know the very few movies I've ever seen. But um, he sits there in silence and then Frodo says... I will take the ring. I don't know where to go. And he sits there for a second, and then Gandalf, of course, the wise wizard who has guided him thus far, says, I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. I'm sorry, I don't have a good Ian McKellen impression for that. But then slowly, you know, one by one, more, of, more friends stand up and commit themselves to the same mission. And so as they all stand, Elrond has this great line in the movie where he says, so be it, you will be the fellowship of the ring. And this was not, hey, we're going to join a club, and we're going to meet on Fridays, and we're going to have pizza, and we're going to talk about the ring. We're going to talk about taking the ring to Mount Doom and throwing it in there and saving the world. It's not like that. It's, we're a fellowship, we're on mission, we're going to go take the ring, and we are going to take it to Mordor, even if death is on, on the way for us, right? That's, uh, that's what they all committed to. You know, Gandalf sits there and he has that great line. He says, well, I'll help you bear this burden as long as it's yours to bear, and I'll guide you and use all my wisdom and all that kind of stuff. And in the very end of this scene, um, Peregrine Took, the little hobbit, stands up and he's there with him and he just says, great, where are we going? You know, he's just clueless about what's going on. But Pippin ends up being one of the vital members of the story that these little hobbits all are on this journey to destroy the ring and they all bring something to the table. Not that they have something within themselves, but the story uses them in miraculous ways. And I think that it, it, it's, it's just a cool picture. It's a really cool picture of, of the church that 
The church is not meant to be, as, as I preached last time in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong, or, or the, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, or to uh, bring to nothing the things that are. He uses the things that are already nothing. So fellowship is not primarily about what is brought to the table talent-wise, but whether we are willing to pour our whole selves into the mission of what that fellowship is. Jesus choosing his 12 disciples is this great example as well, that he chose fishermen, tax collector, a zealot, just a bunch of nobodies. They were chosen contrary to the world's eyes because God chooses the weak to confound the strong. So fellowship extends from the beginning to the end, and if you thought the Lord of the Rings illustration was over, it's not. I have one more piece. <laughs> so Samwise Gamgee, who is the true hero of the story, right? In the very beginning, in the first movie, he, Frodo is at a point where he's going to go off by himself and he's going to go do this mission completely alone. And it's a very sad moment. You know, all of his friends are trying to make a way for him to escape so that he can go and complete the mission. And as he's rowing his boat along, Samwise Gamgee comes from the shore and says, no, don't go, wait, wait. And Frodo's like, you can't even swim. Just go, just leave, go home, go home. You're done. This is it for you. I'm going by myself. And Sam just about drowns just to get in the boat with Frodo. It's a very, very emotional, very moving scene. And he comes into the boat, and again, sorry, I have no good impression for Sean Astin in this case. He said, I made a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee, and I don't mean to. And so he goes with Frodo through the rest of the story, all the way up to Mountain Doom, where Frodo and Sam are worn from weeks and weeks of traveling. They're hungry, they're exhausted, they're thirsty, and they're climbing up a volcanic mountain. It's just a rough situation, and Frodo falls as if he can't even go any further. And Sam takes a look at him, carrying the ring, and he says, does anybody know the line? I can't carry it for you. Anybody? No? Really? Okay, so listen, so this is just a side note. Um, it sounds like we need to have a Lord of the Rings viewing party because it's going to be really important for um, future illustrations that you at least watch the movie. I can confess I haven't read the books yet entirely. But, okay, so Sam says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. I'm just spoiling the movie because you all haven't seen it now. Boy, it's like 10 years old. Okay, anyhow... He says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And so he picks up Frodo and he goes to the top of the volcano. And, you know, the story goes on from there. And I'll, I'll cut the spoilers out from now on. But fellowship extends from the beginning to the end. Paul says here, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's great to have a day where you, you, you sense you're on mission. with, And I've had friendships like this where I've had days where I'm like, we are on mission to share Christ. Me and so-and-so, we're going to go. We're gonna, and, and then they just disappear. And it's one of the saddest things. I, I, I've been in a church context for a long time where um, people in my age group kind of come in and move through the church and they go off and do different things. And now I've finally gone and done that, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I waited, you know, watched like 10 years of people that I build fellowship with and they, they go off to do something else. And not, not something non-Christian, but, you know, it's just this, this breaking of mutual ministry that, that was kind of hard on me sometimes. What Paul is expressing here, though, is that regardless of what situation we are in, Paul's in prison, the Philippians are free, they're on mission together. They have that shared fellowship, regardless of their situation. And we're called to endure in partnership with Christ and each other. We endure with the work he has for us because he endures with the work he's doing in us. And enduring through that work is essential because, again, you can simply join in. You can have all sorts of excitement and joy in embracing some kind of ministry position or some kind of opportunity for the gospel, but then ultimately fading away and ultimately saying, I can't do this anymore. Gospel partnership, gospel fellowship is about enduring from the beginning to the end for the goal of showing Christ to the world. Verses 6 through 8, we have this great verse here. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's one of those great passages for us to look at to know that if God started something in you, he's going to bring it to completion. God, unlike me, doesn't leave things undone. 
He continues and he brings us through. This is shown very clearly throughout redemptive history. You can see all through the Old Testament that God, even through long periods of time, even in moments where God's people thought, where are you, God? God was still working and he still brought about his great purposes. We see this uh, most perfectly, I think, in the coming of Christ, that that the, the people of God waited for so long, for hundreds of years for a Messiah. And then he finally did come just at the right time. So salvation is of the Lord, and we don't contribute anything to making ourselves right with God. Even our faith is a gift. We respond to the gospel, we receive the gospel, and God works through us in that. Um, Since this is something God is doing, I know that I can face my own inadequacies and trust the Lord to continue to remake me in spite of them. He began a good work in me, I know he'll see it through to the end. And this is a long-haul plan, because look at what we have at the end of verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when? At the day of Jesus Christ. That's the long haul, right? We don't know when that's going to be, but it could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years from now. You know, um, we won't be around for that most likely, but we do know for the, the stretch of time that we have become a Christian to the day that we meet Christ, God is working on us and he will bring his work to completion at the end of that. So verse 7, as before he speaks, um, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul speaks of the church's unity with him again, that they are partakers with him, that they share in his imprisonment, and it is as if Paul does not sense at all the typical loneliness of a prisoner because of his unity with the church. You know, and, and so Paul has this, this great expression of being like, hey, we're united, we're in partnership in the gospel, and he's not even looking them in the face. You know, there may be a day that will come that we are separated from other believers, and I think that Paul's example here of being in prison, if, if, and if you know, we talked about religious liberty this morning, if that were to just completely go away tomorrow, which who knows, it could, it might, it might not, I don't know. It could. If religious freedom went away tomorrow and we suddenly found ourselves separated from each other and some of us in prison, some of us in hiding or whatever it may be, would you still sense that fellowship and camaraderie with the people around you that you've sensed today? Like Paul did? We should avail ourselves of opportunities to bear with one another in person so that when, the day, when and if the day comes that we are separated, the strength of our fellowship would endure. Verse 8, Paul says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he puts himself under oath here and he says, God is my witness how, long, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this yearning with the affection of Christ Jesus is pretty, pretty big, you know? I mean, does Jesus love his church? Yes, yeah, he does. Does he just kind of like them or does, is he crazy about the church? He is crazy about the church. He laid his life down and rose again for the church so that it could be his, so that we could be his. And so when Paul says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, he's talking about Jesus' unconditional and sacrificial affection and love for his church. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God. Christ came and took our punishment for us. You know, this is a tough thing as I consider, you know, following Paul's example and thinking about how I love the church. And it's, it's one of the things that's really, for actually this whole year I've considered um, what does it mean to love the church just in my own um, study and prayer time and, and asking the Lord to grow in me a desire to love God's people and, and trying to move away from like, the typical easiness of, of uh, factionalism within the church and saying like, well, these people will be my friends and those people, well, we don't get along on this or whatever it may be. Rather, you know, that, that I could in some way start to walk towards what it looks like for Jesus to love the church in the way that I love the, sorry, that I would love the church in the way that Jesus loves the church. And so John 13, 34 to 35, he says, a new commandment I give you, Jesus is speaking, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the way that the world's going to know that we're disciples of Christ is how we do what? 
love one another. And we're called to love one another in what way? He says, as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, whether you think that means since Jesus loved us, we should love each other, or if you think it means in the way that Jesus loved us, we should love each other, doesn't really matter. The point is, is that it's a steep order that Jesus is calling us to, right? It is not easy to love people when you get to know them, right? And so I'm saying that here, my first sermon, get ready. Once you get to know me, there will be things that you'll roll your eyes at. Praise God. He's still working on me. He's going to bring the work that he began to completion in the day of Christ in my life. I know that's true. But he calls us to love with an otherworldly kind of love, opposite of what our culture would understand, sacrificial and unconditional love. A disciple, a true disciple, will be like his teacher. And so those people that you love to be around because they seem so much like Jesus, we can all be there. We just have to spend time with him. We have to be in his word. We have to be together in his word, together in prayer. That's why Sunday morning is so important that we might grow together. Christ has placed us in this great, again, under the religious liberty that we have to even meet on Sunday mornings, the country that we're in. It's, it's a great opportunity that we have to take to grow together. Okay, last section. Verses 9 through 11. His, Paul's reliance on Christ for our good and his glorious return. So that we can press on to abundant growth in Christ so we can be prepared in the day of Christ. So look at verse 9 one last time. It is my prayer. Okay, so this is how Paul's praying again. He mentioned prayer before. His thankful prayer in remembrance of him. It's prayer with joy. It is my prayer that your love may what? Abound. The Greek word, I looked it up in a, in a place yesterday, and I found that um, this abound is actually super abounding. It is explosive, is the word I could come up with in thinking about this, this hugeness of this abounding love. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Okay, so he wants us to abound in love, to grow explosively in this love. For who or for what? He doesn't say. Well, we can apply this then in any context that we're called to love, calling to being called to love other people in the church or being called to love other people in the world, being called to love God. We have his prayers that we will grow and abound in that love and not settle, right? So this is what he says. So that, is my prayer that you may, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So this love has to be bound to um, a, an idea of knowledge and discernment. He's not calling us to wishy-washy, mindless love. Um, remember Baxter's quote earlier that we fill our minds with the joyful truths of the gospel that our hearts would overflow with it. So our knowledge and discernment is important. Um, Knowledge and discernment, the only thing I'd say about that is knowledge is truth that we know, and discernment is how we know to sort out that truth. So again, it's not mindless, wishy-washy kind of love, but an informed, growingly adept love. It's that moment where you get a gift from a loved one, and, and the value of the gift is not so much in a monetary sense, but it's in the sense of, you got this for me because you know something about me, right? It's the fact that if you, you bowtie people, bowtie friends, we, we need a name for this group of bowtie wearers. It, it's, it's in the way that you didn't just come and say, we're going to put a picture of Nick's bald head on our shirts so that he knows we're supporting him. You, you're taking something that you recognized, you saw, he likes bow ties. I'm going to wear a bow tie because I want to support. You know, that's, that's what's going on here. Um, th- this love with knowledge and discernment is not just, you know, my wife doesn't really, this is going to be weird, just brace yourself. She's not a big candy person. Sorry. She's not. Yeah, right. I think it's weird, too. I'm going to say that while she's not here, even though she's going to listen to this later. Um, she's not really a candy person, but when we first started dating, I just got her candy all the time. And she would be like, oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. And then I find out she doesn't really eat it. It just sits on her desk for however long. And I'm like, well, what am I doing getting candy for? She likes flowers, right? Flowers are the thing. And so, you know, my, she, and, that, and that love abounds and grows with knowledge and discernment because I've recognized something about the person I want to express love to. You get it? Good. Okay. So, the purpose of his prayer here, that we may approve what is excellent, that we may not settle for mediocrity, that we wouldn't just say, I need to get to a certain point in my Christian life and then I feel like I'll be okay. 
but rather that we would say, I want to press on to know Christ and until the day of Christ, that I would take this joy of knowing what I know about him and knowing him, having the joy of knowing Christ and knowing God's people, that I would move forward with that to the day of Christ, ever growing in love and being able to not settle for mediocrity, to not just say, I just want to get that B+, but to move beyond and higher to, to the A. Um, and, and this... The, so the, the result of that then here, that we may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The end result of all of this prayer that he mentions here is that we would be pure and blameless because of Christ's righteousness in the day of Christ for the glory of God. Pure meaning unspotted or unruined and sincere, and blameless, meaning that sin may not trip us up. The, the word here for blameless has to do with a stumbling block, a, a no block of stumbling, so that um, sin would not trip us up. And, you know, there's, we, we talk about sin in ways that we, we actively pursue it, and then other times that we fall into sin. We, we weren't prepared, and when our kid made us very angry, we started yelling at the kid or whatever it may be, and we go, oh, that was an accident. I just wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared to deal with that situation. But the truth is, is that sin, as my grandma put it many years ago, sin is sin, whether we actively pursue it or we fall into it. And the reason that that sin is, is, is ultimately the same thing is because if in preparing to fight against the sins that I know are, the, the, I know the temptations are very hard for me, I don't prepare against sin that I, I don't consider I've, I've not made battle on my sin. I've not done what Paul tells us to do to, to, to kill our sin. We, we have to be ready for those things that we know and the things that we maybe don't necessarily expect. Does that make sense? It was a little bit jumbled there. Um, but the, the difference between those sins that we run after and we indulge in versus the sins that we simply trip up and we go, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. I just wasn't, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't looking, right? Um, it, it's still sin and we still do need to deal with that. And the reason I bring up sin right here is because Paul wants us not to be filled with the fruit of sin, but with the fruit of righteousness, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This fruit that is available to us, that we are called to be a branch and that Jesus is the vine, and that apart from the vine, we can do nothing. We have access to a great joy in Christ all the way until the day of Christ. It's available to you you must receive it. You don't have to conjure it up. You don't have to be bouncing off the walls in excitement. You just have to receive what Christ has already promised to you. Um, even in the simple knowledge of knowing that Jesus has died and risen again and is coming back for us. should create great joy in our hearts. And that's my prayer ultimately as we close today, that we might rely on him for our good um, and for his glorious return, so we could press on with abundant growth, that we would, um, f we would pray for each other, what Paul has prayed for the Philippian church, that, the Philippian church, that we would abound in love, and that, that that not only for ourselves, but for each other, and that we might work on that together. All right? Great. Let's pray.